This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. So last week on the podcast, I started diving into the world of algorithms to get a better understanding of why we don't understand them that well. And this week, I want to explore what does seem pretty clear, and that's just how addicting social media algorithms can be. How familiar does this sound to you? You open Instagram or TikTok to kill a little time. The next thing you know, you're wondering why your eyes are dried out and your thumb feels like it's about to fall off. And it's only then that you realize just how long you've been scrolling. Sure, for most of us, scrolling through social media for sometimes hours on end mainly leaves us feeling guilty for having wasted a chunk of our day. But for some people, getting sucked into social media like that can have a major impact on their mental health. In this episode, I'm looking at where we are now at the intersection of social media and mental health and at the people trying to make these platforms a little less harmful. This is Creative Control. I'm your host, Casey Finey. Each week, I'll be unpacking the driving forces and people shaping the creator economy and what it all means for its future. The conversation around social media and mental health has been happening for a while, but it's been particularly loud recently. You may recall last year when former Facebook data scientist Francis Haugen released thousands of internal documents showing that Facebook and Instagram executives knew about the potential harms of their platforms. Of course, Facebook and Instagram aren't alone here. The algorithms in social media are designed to pull users in for extended amounts of time. So, to understand the impact this can have on our mental health, I called Dr. Nina Vassin at Stanford. Dr. Vassin is a professor, psychiatrist, and the founder of Brainstorm, Stanford's academic lab that focuses on mental health innovation. Through her work as a psychiatrist, Dr. Vassin has seen firsthand the negative impact social media addiction can have. And through her work with Brainstorm, she's trying to help social media platforms mitigate that negative impact. Well, Dr. Vassin, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So where are we now with at the intersection of mental health and social media? Because there's been so much in the news about, you know, how it's impacting mental health, how it's, how it's you know, addictive. And so I guess, like, I would love to hear from your perspective, uh, like, where are we now when you think about the intersection of mental health and social media and the conversations that are happening there? Yes, you're absolutely right. And, you know, as a physician, I take an oath first and foremost to do no harm. So thank you. you. (laughs) We appreciate that. (laughs) Right, right. And so, you know, like first and foremost, when thinking about working with social media companies and the opportunity of social media, that is always the first thing that I'm thinking about is how do we make sure that we're not doing any harm? And I think that if we take a step back and think about this intersection of mental health and social media, There has been so much out there about, you know, the risks and how social media has been bad for mental health. I think what's actually really important is to recognize that there are both ways that social media has been bad, but there are also ways that social media has actually improved mental health. And if we break it down, what the actual, kind of look at the nitty gritty, what it actually comes down to is around the content that you're consuming. That's really what matters is uh, around is social media going to improve your mental health or make things worse. And just to give you an example, even way back when, right, when like a lot of these sites were getting created, 
one of the first things that people were talking about is, oh, wow, social media is amazing, is around how it creates community and how we're able to connect with each other. And you can imagine, you know, we are in the middle of a loneliness epidemic, and we've been that way for years and years here in the U.S., and so when people are able to connect with others online, that is an incredibly powerful thing that makes mental health better. At the same time, you know, we know that there are a host of ways and a host of types of content that you can consume that is very detrimental to your mental health. And that includes things like, you know, looking at certain images that can worsen body image and really create problems with eating disorders. That includes looking at harmful images around self-harm that can worsen thoughts of self-harm and suicidal ideation. And so, you know, depending on what you're consuming, social media can either make your life a lot better or really put you on this very concerning, deep, dark spiral that is very hard to get out of. What's very difficult as a physician, as a scientist, I kind of really want to put the research first and foremost. The research studies in this space are unfortunately quite bad. Um, hmm. The methodology that people use and the ability to kind of look, you know, is, is this trial consistent to this trial, is consistent to this trial? And what I mean there is that there are a lot of confounding factors that make it, I guess the term we'd say is like it's not necessarily clean research. Mm. And it's very hard to distinguish and isolate one element of someone's use. There's so many things that go into and cloud what people are using, how they're using it. And so it's very, very difficult to actually say just spending time on this platform in this way is good or bad, right? Or social media is good or bad in, in be, or this aspect of social media is good or bad. So all of that is to say that um, we need a lot more research. We need a lot better research, a lot more robust research. And moreover, we need it to be done on specific populations so that we can really better understand what's good, what's bad, and most importantly, for whom. Because, you know, what we'll likely see is that things that I do are probably very different from things that my three-year-old nephews do, which is probably very different from what teenagers are doing, you know, and, and all of that. Of course. Um, the final thing I'll say about this is that, you know, what we do at Brainstorm is really work with social media companies to think about how do we leverage these platforms for good? And we actually have this framework that we use with them around do no harm and do good. Mm. The companies are, I think, really good. They have a, a lot of folks at a lot of these companies where they're thinking about how do we make sure to do no harm. They have trust and safety teams at all these companies that are making sure to protect users and everything and, and really are trying to do a good job of that. I think that the most important thing moving forward is how do we leverage these platforms to do good? And so what does that look like? Because, you know, you've, you've talked about working with platforms like TikTok and you know, you've also worked with Pinterest to create what's been described as empathic user experiences. So what does that look like exactly? Yeah, sure. I can share an example of what we did with Pinterest. So yes. what we did with Pinterest is really create a whole suite of tools that we call compassionate search. And so if we think about Pinterest, so, and to give you a little, little shout out, wellbeing.pinterest.com, if anyone, you know, <laughs> wants to find this. Um, so if you think about Pinterest, basically, when people were going to Pinterest before, it turned out that um, the, I think it was the fourth or fifth most common category of search terms on Pinterest was actually around mental health and well-being. And when most people, you know, think about Pinterest, they think about things like wedding planning or interior design or recipes and wouldn't normally think that people were going to Pinterest for mental health help, but it turns out they were. 
what we were able to do is actually before we, we worked with them, people might type in things like depression or anxiety and get something like a top 10 list for depression or a really pretty picture that might calm, calm you down. And the um, Ben Silberman, who's the, the, the CEO of Pinterest, was really, really committed to thinking about how do we take the best of what science has to offer and bring that to the Pinterest platform. And so what we did, you know, we're, as I said, we're physicians, we're scientists, and really wanted to think about what are the same tools that we would use if someone were to come in my office as a patient? What would I want to give them if they came to me and said, I'm depressed? How do I take that and bring that to Pinterest? I guess there, there are three kind of big uh, groups of things that we did with Pinterest. So the first is really around content. And so now if you go to Pinterest and you type in something like stress or depression or anxiety, you actually get a whole toolkit that is based in all of the best evidence-based therapies, same things that I might do with my, my patient, but things that you can actually do on the Pinterest platform. So these are things like cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, which are like the kind of most common, best, most kind of scientifically proven things that we have in the field of mental health. And instead, turn, turn it into these little exercises that you can do to feel better, to decrease your anxiety, to improve your mood, and do it in just a few minutes on the Pinterest platform. And so the idea here is that, you know, you're feeling a little stressed. How can you actually do an exercise and feel a little better in real time on the platform? And again, I think what's so great here is that one of the things I think was really important, Pinterest is like, we want to make this free. We don't want any ads associated with this. We just want to think about how do we get people help? How do we get them access to resources when we know they're already struggling um, and, and something where they can just feel better in the moment? Hmm. And when we think about something like mental health, which is such a huge crisis, uh, what we know, what we know about mental health is that on average, it takes people 11 years from when they first experience the signs or symptoms of mental illness to actually seeking medical attention. Hmm. 11 years. So that was one big thing around actually doing these therapeutic exercises. We call them microtherapeutics. The second thing is actually thinking about the user experience itself. And so, you know, the term we use was compassionate search around how do we make the experience of being on social media more compassionate and more aligned with better mental health and well-being. And so to give you an example, you know, back in the day, or, or like, if you, let's say you're searching for something like a Navy couch, I have a Navy couch, so I'm using myself as an example. When you're on Pinterest, and you type in Navy couch, you know, you, you get a bunch of different types of Navy couches, and then you get pushed into your inbox probably like 20 other types of Navy couches, right? And that's great if you're looking for a Navy couch, but if you're looking for something harmful, mm. right? Or if you're looking for some potentially dangerous content, we don't want you getting 20 more examples of something potentially dangerous, right? And that's unfortunately what happens with a lot of platforms because they're not able to distinguish a Navy couch from something that could be very harmful. And so the second thing we did was actually do a whole host of things around the user experience 
to keep people safe and prevent dangerous things like that from happening. Everything from identifying what are all the potentially dangerous like trigger words or trigger content that could do something like that and make sure that it doesn't get pushed. Hmm. The third thing we did was around algorithms. And algorithms have really become something that I think has been very big in the news right now as we're seeing all of the social media companies and how algorithms have really been a big thing that have gotten people addicted. What we did with Pinterest was specifically work with the algorithm engineers to think about self-harm content. And by educating the engineers around, here's what's harmful, and especially the context of why something is harmful, they were able to then go back and change the algorithms and really figure out how to identify harmful content figure out how to get it off quickly and immediately. And what ended up happening is within six months, they were able to take off and decrease self-harm content by 88% in just six months. Hmm. And so that was sort of the whole suite of tools that we were able to work with Pinterest around, right? Content, deliver good content, make people push to make people mentally health, mentally healthier, change the whole user experience and change algorithms so that all of this is both doing no harm, keeping people safe and proactively getting them better. I'm curious about how you're thinking about content that isn't so overtly bad, right? I know one of the issues that has been really going around, especially with young girls specifically, is just like body image. So you see someone in you know, a bathing suit with, a, with what appears to be a perfect body, and then that can really start to chip away at your, at your self-esteem and like your, your self-worth and everything. But one person's spiral is another person's motivation. So I guess... How are you parsing out what may be a pre-existing mental health condition or someone who's you know, maybe having external factors that are outside of social media that are contributing to their mental health and like how it may decline with social media? How are you sort of parsing through that? Because like I said, one person's motivation could be another person's spiral. So yes. how are you thinking about that? Because there's a lot of nuances with content. You're exactly right. I'll use myself as an example. I gained a lot of weight during COVID. I'm actually very Join actively... the club. <laughs> <laughs> we all did. We all, we all, a, lot, a lot of us did, right? Unfortunately, a lot of That's us That's the community. <laughs> this is we can start a group on TikTok. That'll be our community. That is a group. That's very much a group. And so I... Very much for my health and well-being, I went to my primary care doctor. My primary care doctor said, you need to lose weight because I actually do need to lose weight, right? And so if I'm looking for tips for weight loss, if I'm looking for healthy recipes, if I'm looking for exercise tips, that's actually something that's very much aligned with me getting healthy, right? If someone who weighs 100 pounds is looking for those same things, that could be very detrimental. That could be someone who's struggling with anorexia, someone who's struggling with bulimia, or someone who already has a pre-existing like eating disorder where they, you know, we do not want them restricting their food. We do not want them exercising to the level of where, you know, exercise is actually something that they're using to control and even like, you know, get to a lower body mass index such that it's it's dangerous to them, right? And so that's exactly what you're talking about is what's so hard because to your point, like certain content for one person could be very dangerous for someone else could be perfectly healthy. And, and we think about the same thing for like, you know, culture and context, right? Something that in the US could be very wonderful and well accepted in another culture could be considered horrible, ha- harmful, et cetera, et cetera. And, or for age, something that's like super normal and appropriate for me to look at could be very much something that we don't want a 13-year-old to be looking at, right? And you're exactly right. This is exactly what we're trying to figure out now 
is how do we determine that? And moreover, you know, in a world where, you know, we have our First Amendment rights and we're in, and in a country like the United States where autonomy is, is important and we don't want to restrict certain rights that people have around around these sorts of things, how do we protect people while also giving them, you know, the ability to make some of these decisions for themselves? And so there isn't a clear cut answer. What what I can say is that this is exactly what, you know, I know what we're working with companies on. And I think what companies are also trying to figure out is that and is how do we differentiate and figure out me looking at that type of content versus someone who's at risk for self-harm or an eating disorder, looking at that same type of content, how do we figure out who's looking at it in a good way and who's looking at it in a bad way? And then based on that, how do we figure out when we intervene and when we don't intervene? And also what does intervention look like, right? Mm. Is intervention that we prohibit that content or is it that we give a pop-up to say, hey, we saw that you looked at this and here's actually something that you might find helpful. For example, you know, now if someone types in anything related to self-harm, you know, whether you're on social media or you're reading an article, print news, the suicide help hotline comes up, right? And and that's something that's now very, very common. It wasn't five years ago, but now anything related to self-harm or even anything related to domestic violence, like that, that number comes up. And that's now very, very common. How do we think about the next step from there? What resources do we do we provide people? And where do we draw the line there? Or rather, how, how much do we push to people? For me, I feel like it's part of my professional responsibility to work with these social media companies and why I would not want these companies to make these decisions without you know, myself or someone like me with my training, because this is what I see every day as a clinician. This is what I see in my patients. And so how receptive have you found these companies to be? Because you're now talking about their bottom line, which I don't want, I don't want to, you know, (laughs) I don't want to assume (laughs) anything of these CEOs, but they want people to be as engaged as possible. When you think about something, you know, like these addictive algorithms, like it's addictive by design. Like they want people to be super engaged. They want, that just means, you know, more revenue for them. So I guess like, how are these conversations going? Like where you're saying like, hey, there needs to be some kind of intervention. There needs to be some sort of consideration for mental health. And on the other side, they're thinking, well, we need people as plugged in as possible because this is this makes our business viable. How are those conversations going exactly? You have absolutely nailed it. That is the big <laughs> question. And and that's exactly why also, you know, it's like, I think a few years ago, the, all this sort of stuff around mental health and wellness was sort of like, oh, that's cute. Right? That's, yeah, that's, unfortunately. <laughs> like, <laughs> yay, let, let's, <laughs> sure, let's do that. But, you know, if it was going to impact the bottom line, if it wasn't bringing revenue in, or more importantly, if it was going to take revenue away, then we're not going to deal with it, right? I can't speak for everyone. I can only speak for, you know, the companies who, who we've worked with. And I mean, what, what I have to say is, is a few things. One is that, you know, some of these companies have come to us proactively. Hmm. That's also, I, I think, a, a sign that things are changing. Um, so, you know, five years ago, that wasn't the case. Now, now I think companies are very aware of it. I'm not a cynical person. I'm a very optimistic person. I, I think like, you know. We need more I, people like you. <laughs> <laughs> I think I balance you out as being very negative. So, <laughs> I'm an optimist and also I do think people are very, very well intended. I think, you know, people at these companies are parents. They are, you know, people themselves who use these products and are not that badly intended in any way and do want to see the best for themselves, for their loved ones, for their children. They're like all of us, right? 
And so I genuinely don't think that there is a, you know, deep, dark kind of um, mission of, you know, let's get everyone addicted. And like, I, my, my background actually growing up was, uh, was an anti-tobacco. I did all this work mm. with the American Cancer Society. And so I do actually view the tobacco companies as these like kind of big bad people who, you know, knew that tobacco <laughs> caused cancer and like very actively targeted kids and put smoking advertisements near schools and in like 17 magazine and stuff like that. And I do actually view that as quite different from what's happening in the social media world. So some people would argue it's the same thing, but I would kind of respectfully say, I do think it's a little bit different. Feel free to disagree with me on that. No, I was going to say this. No, that's so interesting that you bring that up because people have been comparing this push for transparency in terms of like how these algorithms work. Like, why are they so addictive? Like people have been comparing that to the push against big tobacco of saying like, because when people were, a lot of people were smoking, not realizing that there were addictive ingredients in cigarettes. And so there are a lot of people who've been going about addressing the perceived issues around social media, like the same way as big tobacco. And so, you know, there's a lot of legislation happening right now. Right, right. Do you think government is going about it in the right way? So I'll, I'll say a couple of things there. First is that, you know, I think some of the differences, one is that social media is still like, you know, the tobacco companies knew for decades yeah. that that their products were harmful. And there's also no good that comes from smoking, right? Versus, no. again, I think the difference is that with social media, like there is some good that comes from it. There, like, mm-hmm. there's a lot of great things that came from, you know, like think about like Arab Spring and like, you know, there, there, there are a ton of very good things that have come to our society in all forms from social media. And there are very real negative consequences that we are figuring out. There's also a time frame thing, right? And even if we think about things like, you know, Facebook and the whistleblowing and everything like that, like we figured that was something from like a couple of years ago. And yes, they knew that. And yes, like that was not okay. They needed to act on that sooner, a hundred percent. But that's different from like knowing for decades and decades. And the point there being that like, when one companies figure out harm, it is absolutely their responsibility to act on it, right? Just like I'm a doctor, right? In medicine, the minute a pharmaceutical company realizes that there's any harm to any medicine that they're putting out there, a clinical trial would get suspended immediately, right? In that same way, I think that what the companies all need to be doing that they are not doing a good enough job at is they all need to be doing much more internal research. Hmm. Right now, a lot of the research is happening in academia, and they should not be relying on third-party academics at like universities and stuff like that to be doing this research. We talked about algorithms because I think algorithms, you know, if we look at the most recent, I think the Senate hearing from just a few months ago, algorithms were the really big thing that they were talking about. I think it was uh, YouTube, Snapchat, and TikTok who were there in the Senate hearing. And they were really talking about the algorithms. In effect, the algorithms push emotional and provocative content, toxic content that amplifies depression, anger, hate, anxiety, because those emotions attract and hook kids and others to their platforms. In effect, the more content and more extreme versions of it are pushed to children who express an interest in online bullying, eating disorders, self-harm, even suicide. And that's why we now have a drumbeat of demands for accountability along with the drumbeats of disclosure. And I think what's really important there is that the issue with the algorithms is that it so immediately takes you from one thing to another and you don't even have like an instant to think about what happens. And I think that what we need to think about 
And what we need to change there is that the algorithms have developed with this intention of keeping us online. And the problem is that there's no ability to like pause and think. There's no time. Time just basically goes away. And I think that's what actually makes it so addictive. What we need to do is we need to take a mindful moment so we can stop and do something else because everything is an instant. And if we, if we, if we think about in the real world, right, in the real world, if we were looking at all these things, we would actually have a moment to pause and think about something else and engage in something else. But when you can just like swipe right or left or have all this content pushed at you, you don't have the minute to breathe. You, you don't even have a minute to blink and look at something else. And so we need to think about how we can break the cycle and look at something else, take a breath, and that was what will give your brain the ability to actually think about something else. Hmm. And that's, I think, what the algorithm needs to be able to do. And, and actually, even like maybe policy needs to encourage that and enforce that. Creating those moments that break the cycle of endless scrolling is exactly what one technologist has been working to do, even after it got him banned for life from Facebook and Instagram. More on that after the break. This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. Around six years ago, Louis Barclay started noticing just how much time he and pretty much everyone else around him was spending online. So, He quit his job in investment banking, taught himself how to code, as one does, and started creating tools to help reduce our addiction to the internet. One of those tools was Unfollow Everything, a browser extension that essentially allowed Facebook users to delete their news feeds by unfollowing friends, groups, and pages. Now, mind you, unfollowing is a function Facebook launched in 2013 that lets users unfollow but not unfriend the people they're connected to. Louis just created a way to do it automatically and at scale. It's kind of a thing of control and you know i'm not a control freak but it does strike me that it's really really cool to get to be in charge of that first experience when you log on to instagram or you know go to your facebook or even you know open up tiktok getting some control back over what that incredibly powerful first screen is i guess you could talk about it kind of as like a default it's like what is the default thing that you see it's it's i think um i was trying to come up with an analogy for it the other day i think there's so many amazingly useful things about these platforms. I, I am the first person to say that. I'm not anti every single thing that Facebook or Instagram does. But at the same time, the fact that you have to go via this kind of addictive central heart, this feed, to get to those other useful things, you know, to go into that amazing support group that exists on Facebook for XYZ or talk to your grandmother and so on. That, that's the thing that really sucks for me. It's kind of like that default being in the way. So I did feel this incredible sense of control from getting to decide what that default was going to be. Hmm. Right. And you made it. And what was the reaction when you put it in? Because it was like, it was a, a Chrome extension. And so once it hit the Chrome store, like what was the reaction? What was the feedback that you were getting? I noticed that it just started growing on its own. Um, I was doing no marketing. And just to be clear, it wasn't getting huge. But by the end, it was probably around 15,000 people who had used it and all through word of mouth. So yeah, people being extremely positive about what it was doing for them and, and how it was really it's crazy to think that someone would say that your piece of code is literally changing their life. And that's what was happening. Yeah, no, I can imagine because I think, like you mentioned, it is such a cumbersome task to unfollow 
everything manually that a lot of people I'm sure just don't, they're like, okay, well, screw it. I'm not even going to try. Like, what's the point? And so here comes this, this little bit of code that does it automatically. And you're right. And I love the fact that you use that word control, like giving people a little bit more control over what they see, which I think isn't inherently not a bad thing. Absolutely. But apparently (laughs) Facebook (laughs) thought it was a bad thing. So tell me what happened. You have this bit of code that, you know, is gaining some traction, you know, getting positive feedback. And then what happened? Right. So yeah, it's just like a it's a cute little piece of code. Um, I'm really proud of the fact that it's out there helping people. By the way, it's you know completely free. And then one day I'm just sitting there and I just can't log into Facebook or Instagram. And I'm kind of like, okay, that's pretty weird. Um, and I remember a friend of mine who I told about it kind of joked about how maybe it's because I, I, you know, I make this tool. And I was just like, nah, nah, that's, that's ridiculous. I mean, come on. Um, you know, I'm sure Facebook have got better things to do with their time than has some people like me. And then five hours later, I got this extremely aggressive letter from Facebook's lawyers based in the US, based, I think, in in Washington state, telling me that I was banned for life from Facebook and Instagram, and basically saying that they demanded, they demanded that I stop having my tool unfollow everything uh, out there, and a whole bunch of other pretty intimidating sort of requests, which, you know, they, they kind of, they couch more as demands than requests. So yeah, I was kind of trembling my boots. Um, at that stage, I had no one to talk to about it. You know, I was just talking to my wife about it and I was kind of like, whoa, this is so weird. And I stayed up that night until five in the morning because I was freaking out so much. So that's basically what happened. So Facebook kind of came along, saw it, and then decided to essentially intimidate me, you know, bully me with their lawyers. And uh, yeah, I really passionately believe that I was making life better for Facebook users. You know, I was not forcing anyone to do this kind of intervention to their Facebook to have no newsfeed. I was just allowing people the option of doing so if they wanted to. So, you know, almost by definition, I think you'd say that I was making life better for Facebook users themselves, which is something, by the way, that I told them, you know, like in in my responses, but that changed absolutely nothing. I should note here that I actually reached out to Meta and a spokesperson said that Unfollow Everything was indeed in violation of the company's terms and service and that altering people's accounts through automated means could pose a risk if it were to be abused. They mentioned some tools Meta has implemented across Facebook and Instagram that give users more control, such as the ability to monitor how much time you spend in these apps, the option to set reminders for yourself to take a break from scrolling, and privacy and security checkups to review who you're posting to. Meta's spokesperson also said they've reached out to Louis multiple times this year to resolve the issue of him being banned from Facebook and Instagram. How or when Louis gets back on these platforms remains to be seen, but his focus right now is researching and inventing more ways for users to have a healthier relationship with social media. I think that one of the first things that we need to do to be able to regulate against big tech is to get solid research showing which kind of interventions we should actually put into law. With Unfollow Everything, one of the cool things about it that I was really excited about was that I was working with a university in Switzerland, which is the University of Neuchâtel. And what we were doing was we were basically studying what does it look like for a group of users who don't have a newsfeed versus a, a, a group that does. And, you know, this is this information that Facebook has. Facebook created the newsfeed because, you know, it was this incredible thing to keep people engaged for longer. So the kind of research that I was doing with this university was to try and almost like reverse engineer or kind of like 
find out the data that Facebook already has about how much more usage the newsfeed causes. Um, so, you know, that study is basically going to come out at some point this year. I'm really excited about it. And in the meantime, what I'm doing is I'm moving forward and turning this other tool that I have, which is, which is called Nudge, into more of a research platform where what I want to do is test interventions. And, you know, another example might be what happens if suddenly you don't have YouTube recommendations. If they're hidden, I mean, you can always show them if you want, but they're hidden um, by default and you don't auto load that next video by default. What does this do to things like the amount of time that someone spends on YouTube, but also other things like um, a user's access to misinformation or, you know, um, access to this kind of messed up world of, uh, we, we, you know, we've, there's been a lot of commentary about how um, YouTube does just end up showing you some really uh, bizarre and messed up stuff. So I'm really interested in basically doing research in this area, and that's what I'm working on at the moment. And I'd love it if you can actually talk a little bit more about Nudge, because you mentioned that you, you're kind of leaning into it becoming like a research center. But like, I'd love to talk. I'd love if you can just talk more about, you know, the tools and the products that you're building through this company. So, yeah, just basically Nudge is all about um, things like telling you when you're spending too long on a site or scrolling too far down and also checking with you before you go into that additive website, be it Facebook or Instagram or even even, you know, I think I have personally a massive addition to a lot of news websites. So just checking with you that you really want to go and um, and browse that website before you go in, and uh, yeah. So I, what I and what I like about it, which is I guess you could uh, call this the recurring theme of what I think about, is that I'm not forcing anyone to change their behaviour. I'm not um, reducing choice for anyone. I'm just saying, how about you set things up for yourself in a slightly better way, and you might find yourself browsing in, in a way that you you feel is healthier. Nice, and I would love to hear from you. Like, what would be your social media platform newsfeed algorithm of your dreams like what what is it that you really want because it sounds like you know kind of going back to the the topic of of having more control i guess what does that control manifest into like what is it that you would really want from these platforms yeah it's a really good question i think that even before talking about the algorithm the thing that i'm most interested in is forcing users to have to opt in to using the newsfeed. Now, I don't necessarily mean the first time that they log on, right? But what I mean is, as they scroll down, just checking with them that they really want to continue. You know what I mean? Like, mm. the classic thing here is infinite scroll. The fact that your newsfeed, or, you know, I mean, I guess you could say that TikTok in its own way is kind of infinite scroll as well. You just, videos keep on coming, coming forever. So, you know, I think like, before even talking about the algorithm, which by the way, you know, there are lots of things to do there. I think that a, a super interesting intervention would be to make it so that people have to keep on saying, yes, I really do want to carry on doom scrolling. That's the kind of thing that I'm, I'm super into. And then when we talk about the algorithms, I think the first thing is definitely to have that transparency around what the you know, uh, algorithm is doing. I think that that's something that's completely lacking. And then I think giving users a set of choices is interesting over which kind of algorithm is used. But what I do believe quite passionately is that if you look at the actions of big tech, often big tech companies are giving us more choices. And an example is the ability to unfollow. So that's something that didn't always exist. And then Facebook, you know, one day, I want to say maybe around 2013, was like, okay, you can now unfollow things. But the thing is, a choice doesn't really mean much if people don't use it. So I'm interested in, you know, without going into my own preference around how news feeds should be ordered, I'm interested in choice, but I'm also interested in basically research around which default is the least harmful. Hmm. And that's the kind of thing that I would love to do personally. 
I think it's pretty clear by this point that something should be done not only about how addicting social media can be, but also how easy and dangerous it is to fall down the wrong rabbit holes. These platforms have introduced features here and there that sort of flick at some of these issues, but many would agree that more can and should be done. The question is, how much more and who should be making those decisions? In next week's episode, I'm rounding out this conversation by unpacking the current state of government regulation and big tech. That's going to do it for this episode of Creative Control. Make sure you subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And as always, make sure you rate and comment as well. We always love hearing from you. Fast Company podcasts are produced by Avery Miles, Blake Odom, and Matt Toder. Editing and sound design is by Nicholas Torres. Our executive producer is Joshua Christensen. Deputy editor David Litsky provided editorial oversight for this episode, as well as senior VP of entertainment Scott Meebus. Scott Mebus.